Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to another episode of Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am your host, Ryan Siebold, and with me, as always, is a man who recently opened the world's first Ouija board social club, Mr. Jason Peters! Well, this is usually where I'd ask you what's up, Ryan, but I have actually already gotten in touch with your late great uncle, and he let me know that apparently you're a little Loki, buddy, which for anybody listening, oh, no. Loki means like uh, you're out of balance. So Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, he would like me to tell you that you are not eating enough Bavarian root and that you need to drink more tomato juice as well. Is is he here? Is is he in the room right now? No, don't be silly, Ryan. Let me talk to him. No. Put him on the phone. That's not how this works, man, okay? Put him on the phone. Put to, him on the... I have to deal with people you just disrespecting it's your social all club. the time. We, yes, we have this, like, we have a protocol for dealing with this at the club because there's a lot of skeptics out there who don't believe that we actually make, t- uh, you know, make contact with the afterlife. And then, of course, you know, there was all of those uh, daytime talk show hosts that uh, kind of ruined it because everybody kind of figured out their grift for a while. Do you happen to recall their names? I do not remember their names at all. Remember South Park did, like, the biggest douche in the universe on them? Oh, yeah. That's What's that right. dude's name? Jonathan Edwards? Edwards is right. Is it Jonathan? I don't think it's I Jonathan. So. Something Edwards. Let's not review movies. Let's just spend about seven and a half minutes trying to remember someone's <laughs> name here. I think that'll be really good audio, really good radio for everyone to tune into. While Ryan looks that up, here's my rendition of "Girl from Ipanema." Ba 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 da ba ba da ba. The girl from Ipanema is calling, and I don't know the rest of the words, and I cannot sing. Yeah, John Edwards. All that happened, it was John Edwards. Oh, because, yeah, it's the John. The John. It's, such a, it's so funny. There's like, it's funny that there's a difference to the way that I remember things between a John and a Jonathan. Because you're like, Jonathan sure. Edwards. And I'm like, no, that doesn't sound right. And you're like, John Edwards. And I'm like, that's the guy. Yeah, formal. That's the one. You and I are formal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't there also a John Edwards that ran for president uh, when we were younger? Real straight and uh, narrow kind of guy? There was a John guy? something. Hold on, I'll look it up. <laughs> <laughs> Just look up visuals that none of our listeners can see. I'll put you on hold. What's, a, what's another, what's another the, hold song? We're putting I'll our listeners in. We gave them the, the on hold music. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. You know what's funny is like these days it's actually like songs from when we were young. It's like If You Want to Be My Lover by the Spice Girls. You're like, that's not yeah. hold music. That was a... That was a number one on uh, Total Daily Request Live for 17 weeks back on the MTV. They just play now that that's what I call music. They just put that on. (laughs) Let it ride. So can I talk to my grandpa or no? 
<laughs> I here's the thing. We can, but like not here and now. What we would do is we would take you back to the social club. And then we would actually go through the ceremony, right? We would bring everybody around. You get the Ouija board. Uh, there's certain, you know, you, some people like to do incense, but at the very least, you want to have some sort of sage or sage-like substance burning. You can just grab some fresh thyme out of the fridge if you don't happen to have like sage. But either way, you know, it, it's a whole ceremony. People like you think we just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to open my cell phone and like he's going to come in through the static. That, that is not how it works. OK. And frankly, I, so you, I don't you, appreciate you're the summoning the, the great beyond with uh, with the colonel's recipe of seven herbs and spices. Is that what's going on? Here? <sighs> I, you know, you invited me on this show. I, I thought that you were going to be taking me seriously. I didn't realize I was going to come here just to be <laughs> insulted the entire time. I, I, you know, I, Look, I, I don't need this. I can go back to the club and, you know, we can, uh, quite frankly, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and I am going to ask your great grandmother to tell us some really awful things about you and then publish them on the internet because I don't appreciate how this has been going. So you're going to ask my great grandmother to invent Twitter? <laughs> yeah. No, no. She knows what it is. They keep them, uh, appraised, you know, sometimes they learn Got from it. us when we're talking to them. We teach, we'll tell them about what some of the current technologies are to keep them in the loop. But yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to ask my dead Graham Graham to, uh, to say what's up Ryan. Cause I never got that mm. and I wanted to get it. Well, maybe next time you should be a little bit more polite and I'd be willing to help you out for now. Go All screw right. yourself. All right. Well, <laughs> well, with all that out of the way, um, I, we do have a movie to discuss today. Jason, uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? I do. I'm happy to talk to you about this movie. Much happier than having you make fun of my uh, personal hobbies and such. The movie we are looking at this week is Beasts of the Southern Wild. I have a description from Google that says, Faced with both her hot-tempered father's fading health and melting ice caps, that flood her ramshackle bayou community and unleash ancient aurochs, six-year-old hush puppy must learn the ways of courage and love. Now, I think that also might be from Letterboxd or possibly IMDb. I'm going to have to admit right now that I didn't make a good note as to who or where that description came from, but it is certainly a description I did not write, so attribution to random author in the internet. Maybe it came from the great beyond. Maybe, yeah, maybe someone, uh, you know, <laughs> is trying to, like, come through and tell you about Hush Puppy. I, you know, I was trying to move <laughs> on, but since you brought it back up, that is actually how I got this description. And let me tell you, it took about seven hours and 38 minutes having to go to each yeah, damn that's a long... letter time after time. <laughs> also, time you might triangle. be surprised. No, your great-grandmother wrote this. She's very talented. I did not know she was such yeah. a good copywriter. Big Ben Zeitlin fan, my grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyways, so uh believe we have a uh, trailer to watch here. Uh, is this where you ask me what I think about this movie? Ah, that's where it is. I was kind of lost on that. I was like, hmm, where do I go from here? Yeah. So, Ryan, uh, I need to ask you, you know, since we're, we're talking about it here, uh, what did you think about this movie? Hold on. Hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm going. I'm getting a sense. <laughs> oh, this is going to take a while. This is going to take a while. I got to burn some some thyme and rosemary and uh, some pepper and salt here. Um, I'll tell you what. Let me get back to you right after this trailer. The whole universe depends on everything fitting together just right. Have one piece bust, 
even the smallest piece, the entire universe would get busted. is an aurochs, a fierce creature. The star's coming! The star's coming! Y'all better learn how to survive. I'm your daddy, and it's my job to take care of you. Okay? And it all goes quiet behind my eyes. I see everything that made me. Flying around in invisible pieces. I see that I'm a little piece of a big, big universe. You're gonna be the king of bad time. I promise that. In a million years, when kids go to school, they gotta know. Once there was a hush puppy, and she lived with her daddy in the bathtub. Before we get into the specifics, I will go ahead and give you my high level and then I will ask yours and uh, then we'll get into it from there. I thought it was okay. I will have to admit I was slightly disappointed just because I did have high expectations. This is a film that had been on my radar for a long time. Uh, You know, I remember it being nominated for Best Picture, won all sorts of awards when it came out probably about 10 years ago, I think at this point, right? Uh, Yep. Almost exactly. Yeah. 2012. There you go. And yeah, I think there's a lot to like about the film. I think that some of my complaints are justified, but obviously don't seem to have kept most of the movie going public from enjoying the film uh, because they're, you know, pretty consistent high praise for this film uh, when it came out as well as still. And so we'll go ahead and get into all the specifics about uh, what I appreciated about it and what I didn't. How about you, man? Love this movie. Yeah. Can't speak highly enough about it. Yeah. This is my kind of movie. I'm all about it. Yeah. I'm really anxious to hear what you didn't like. If I had to close my eyes and, uh, you know, pull something out of the air, Ouija board style, I could probably guess uh, of a few things, but those things didn't bother me. And I'm all about it. It's also, you know, really short and tight and sweet. It didn't waste too much of your time. Uh, We do like that a little bit of brevity sometimes when we get into these three hour long epics. I wish the third act was a little stronger or a little tighter, but uh, the performances were fantastic. The way they filmed it and the production value and everything was great. Um, I felt what the characters were feeling throughout It started a little obscure, and I was like, what am I about to see? It was not at all what I expected. I was thinking that it was going to be something a little more fantastical based on the description on Google. Also, just based from, like, the marketing campaigns and everything. I mean, that was— Right, right, yeah. yeah. I I, I definitely had that. And But even even, even after sort of letting that sink in, there were still things that I had issues with. So we will go ahead and uh, get into that. I just need to know a good place for us to start, sir. At the beginning. All right. At the beginning. Someone remembers the script. I'm glad one of us is paying attention. God damn it. Yeah. I'm fucking playing along. I'm not dicking around <laughs> with somebody's dead gram gram. Like, oh, I'm holding all the secrets and I'm not going to tell you. No, no. I'm in it. Like, I'm in the seat here. Let's do it. 
she's <laughs> by the way by the way she's 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 speaking to me she wants me to let you know that she thinks you're a jerk and that oh now now she's here yeah, right she just yeah. showed up to let to let me know not to listen to you too much because you're a jerk and that i am now her favorite I, I, I am officially over. Why do I get the feeling she's not there? Favorite. And you, these are you're just saying this. No, no, you're just this coming is absolutely coming through. Bye, Graham. Graham, I love you. Thanks so much. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. I don't know why he is that way, but it's okay. I'll, I'll, yeah, you can just talk to me now. Moving forward, it'll be okay. I'll get back to you later. Bye. Okay. I mean, since you used her formal name, Graham, Graham, I guess I'll have to believe you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, at the beginning of this film, we open on a windy exterior of a dilapidated house on a bayou, quickly introduced to a young girl. She's playing outside with birds and pigs while dad is upstairs cooking a whole ass chicken. This girl is our six year old protagonist, Hush Puppy, and she is played by the very talented Quavengine Wallace. And her dad is a gentleman by the name of Wink, and he is played by a gentleman named Dwight Henry in his very first role, which is very impressive. We'll get into the performances later. Now, they live in a place affectionately known as the bathtub, at least affectionately to them. This is a very sort of extreme poverty type of bayou environment that they live in, and I really feel like it's important to kind of, you know, understand the two things about this world, which is that, you know, they live in extreme poverty and dad is also a very severe alcoholic. And that's kind of one of the things that we'll get into later that I feel like maybe the film glosses over or kind of makes an excuse for, again, we, we can have that debate here in a little bit. Now they very quickly board a homemade raft and sail down river. We see that the very beautiful sort of water and countryside is contrasted and juxtaposed by these very sort of domineering factories in the background that loom large. But when they get to where they're going, they meet their friends that live there as well. And they drink and they dance and they play music and they sing. And if I didn't mention, they drink some more. And we hear voiceover from Hush Puppy. And there's going to be voiceover of hers that comes and goes throughout the course of the film. She listens to some heartbeats of some animals before playing with fireworks. And the title appears, finally, of Beasts of the Southern Wild. So, Ryan, it sounds like the aesthetic and the overall presentation, which I believe is a large draw for this film, really worked for you in a way that maybe it didn't quite work for me. So why don't you tell us what about it worked for you? Um, I think it feels very, you know, this is a human tale, right? This is a grassroots story uh, told about a certain uh, group of people through the eyes of a a very young six-year-old girl that's growing up in this environment. Um, And I I just thought it felt very authentic and uh, and organic. And, and, um, you know, it was filmed in that area. Uh, you know, they all moved down there from New York to, to tell that tale in, you know, in that location. So this isn't backlots. This isn't sets. Um, you know, you feel the mud, you feel the dirt, you feel, uh, the troubles these people, you know, deal with every day or the joy that they get to share, you know, as the trade-off for going through these hardships through their freedom and escapism from the, the world and, and all the pressures thereof. So, uh, yeah, I just thought it felt very real. I you know, it's that, also yeah. very... It's also very similar to um, a movie called Gummo uh, to me okay. by Harmony Corinne. Sure. That uh, maybe some of our listeners have seen. I, I don't think you have, right, Jason? 
I have not. No, I, I it's I don't believe it's available on streaming or anywhere right now. It's kind of one of those films that you've got to like get like, you An know, from a, one. Yeah. The region free Korean disc on eBay, you know, you get <laughs> right. for 12 bucks in standard def or something like that. It's kind of one of those. Yeah. So, no, I have not. Seen yeah. It. If I recall that that tells the tale of a uh, town that was recently, uh, you know, recovering from heavy storms and a tornado had gone through and just wrecked the whole place. And, you know, being and impoverished people, um, you know, they didn't have the funds to fully recover. And so they're just kind of like piecemealing their life back together with scrap or any way they can. And this is kind of that same deal. Um, sure. And it's kind of told on the heels of, you know, several nasty hurricanes. Obviously, the one that comes to everyone's mind uh, that struck that area is Katrina. But uh, there have been several others that, um, you know, keep setting these people back. And, uh, you know, they're just trying to patchwork it together without being forced to flee their little ragtag town uh, and their community. It's all about community. And I, yeah. I just feel like that, you know, that, that all resonated very well with me. I, yeah. And I can see that. I do agree with that. I will certainly give the film credit for having a very authentic presentation. I think that the environment that it's set up is very authentic. 100%. I would have liked to have seen us, perhaps explore more than one environment. I don't think the film does that. I think it's very, you know, centrally located, which which isn't necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. But I think for a film like this, I would have liked to have seen it actually be a little bit bigger in certain ways. And again, we can uh, dive a little bit more into that later. The one thing that I will say sure. that jumped out initially that I was very impressed with besides that is the score. And in looking sure. at it, it looked like it was a collaboration between this guy, Don Romer, or Dan Romer, excuse me, and the actual writer-director of the film, Ben Zeitlin. And yep. I think that when you listen to it, you know, what it does so well is it captures the authenticity of the bayou with that sort of, you know, folk-inspired, blues-inspired, banjo, southern twang kind of thing that we get. And then it gives it that sort of, you know, ethereal, magical soundscape that it's trying to also overlay uh, on top of that. Yes. And I think that did a really good job with that. That was one thing that really stood out. Yeah. I mean, as we go through, and I'm not going to info dump you here uh, for 45 minutes, which, you know, there's a lot to talk about in the making of this. I, I think the making of this film is as interesting to me as the film itself. And I, I went on a okay. pretty deep dive. But but according just sticking with the music, um, I will say that... Uh, the one thing you'll notice as we go along and talk about all the department heads and, and everyone involved in the film, uh, these people were all kind of like mad scientists in the way that they're all geniuses in their uh, respective craft. They know about other crafts um, so that they're able to cross pollinate. They all worked very closely together, all the department heads. And so, um, you know, there were times when Ben would, you know, specifically leave big chunks of mo the movie silent knowing that, you know, I want a big piece of score here. Um, I don't know what it's going to be yet, but I'm going to go back and work with Dan and we're going to sit down and bang this out. Um, and then, you know, but there, all these people also had to be willing to, I mean, they all, one thing we're going to talk about here very quickly is that, the, you know, all the, the whole crew of about 90 people moved down uh, to live in New Orleans in this bayou area and um, in this small little town on the, uh, border of the Gulf of Mexico, um, about 80 miles southwest of New Orleans. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, it's right on the Mississippi Delta. And, you know, they it's very, very authentic in that way. But my point being, 
people like Dan uh, Romer or the cinematographer or the set designer or the costumes or any of these things, uh, they all are living at this point in time um, in a modified gas station that served as their production office. They're living in vans. They're, you know, pitching tents, whatever they need to do. Uh, to, um, you know, really entrench themselves into the making of this film and be at the ready around the clock to get all these scenes done. So uh, that said, you know, you're not going to get a John Williams or a Hans Zimmer to like, yeah, no, I'll just come live in a fucking van, you know, out in the mud (laughs) and the sticks, you know, for, you know, months at a time and deal with mosquitoes and all of these things. Um, The fact that you're able to get such talented people that are also willing to make such sacrifices along the way to make this film i think it's a true testament to you know the story that they were telling and and uh and that's i think a reason why you get the authenticity getting back on track and talking about the score itself um i will say that uh you know they scored this not only with instruments they they were using like really expensive vintage you know cool microphones and all these cool recording techniques you know high high quality recording techniques but then what they would record with them is like a lot of the percussion is them beating pots and pans or baking sheets and like using heavy yeah. distortion. There's a lot of, uh, they, they had a folding table, like a little TV tray that they were using with like drumsticks. And then, you know, they'd add a lot of, uh, reverb to that and, mm-hmm. you know, run it through all these different effects processors. So, um, how they were capturing the sounds too, was very, very interesting. It wasn't that they were in a sound recording studio, you know, fancy pants sound recording studio in New York. And they got brought in an orchestra and all of that. Um, you know, it was all very organic sounds, very earthy tones that they were gathering and then, you know, modifying them uh, as needed. Yeah, that is cool. And that also kind of makes sense because one of the other aspects of the film that I was impressed with from a technical standpoint, and one of these things that, you know, a lot of people aren't really going to pay attention to. You kind of have to be a film nerd, but just the sound design and the sound effects and the sure. way that – a right. lot of that really brought out, you know, the, the, especially during the storm, for example, you know, like it really sounds and feels like a storm and yes, across the board, whether it's the music or the sound, I do think that the sort of aural experience of this film is definitely one of the highlights in what it has to offer. Yeah. I had it cranked the whole time. It sounded great. And, um, it got quiet when it needed to get quiet and it got loud when it needed to get loud. The things that you wanted to hear, the textures throughout the film are all there. Um, yeah, they, they did an amazing job, especially again, and I'm going to talk about this many times throughout our show here today, but just what they were up against and how they were doing this. They were literally filming, uh, you know, I mean, they say the the old adage is no animals, no kids, no water. That's like, you know, if you want (laughs) to have a smooth shoot. Stick away from those three things. And they incorporated all, all of them, three yeah. quite a bit. Uh, so <laughs> that was uh, something, you know, as a first time filmmaker, uh, Ben Zeitlin, he had uh, made a short film prior to this and, um, you know, uh, come out of Wesleyan uh, University. And so he was an educated guy and whatnot. But uh, yeah, for a first time feature filmmaker to be given, uh, this was shot on a budget of $1.8 million. You know, that's that's a heavy task to just go out and think you're going to do this and go live in the muck and, and convince a bunch of people to do that too, and then not have them quit on you. <laughs> you would think at least a bunch of them would have been like, dude, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but it ain't my thing. So good luck to you. Absolutely. Now, when we return to the film, we have a woman who is talking to the children and she tells of these arcs. These are the ancient boar creatures that I think are very closely associated with the film. That's what I thought of when I would think about the film. I know they were tied into the marketing and such, and they seem to be a central sort of metaphor for what that may or may not be, we'll get to that. 
and they're seen periodically through the film. Now, Hush Puppy's back home, and her dad goes missing, at which point she's trying to figure out dinner. He always makes the chicken. She doesn't have chicken. She's hungry, so she tries to make her own. I believe it's evaporated milk that she combines with cat food, and very quickly after that, dad returns, but he's wearing a hospital gown. She doesn't exactly know what's going on. He seems disoriented, and of course, this concoction that she's making for dinner, it catches on fire and the kitchen and sort of her side of the house, cause they kind of have sides of the house entirely lights ablaze. And so dad has to run in and, you know, try to put it out, but he doesn't. So then he ends up chasing her outside, catches her, smacks her. And then she punches him in return in the heart. And that's when he sort of falls back. We get this image of the ice caps melting, which, you know, it remains to be seen whether those two, Moments are supposed to be tied to one another, but the film does present it as though as they are. And then she has to go get him medicine from one of the local people. It's sort of like a homespun medicine of, you know, whatever route, this, that, the other. And by the time she returns, dad is gone. Now, Ryan, one of the most talked about and appreciated aspects of this film, I think, is the cinematography Now, there's some very interesting aspects to the cinematography, not the first of which, if I understand correctly, this film was shot entirely in 16 millimeter. And also it was was the cinematographer's very first film and never shot anything before. Is all that correct? Uh, That's my understanding. This is his first feature. Now, I'll start by saying the cinematographer's name is Ben Richardson and uh, Ben and Ben, the director, Ben Zeitlin, met in Prague in 2004. Uh, it was at that point they decided they wanted to collaborate and work together. So um, Ben Richardson, the cinematographer, uh, shot Ben Zeitlin's uh, first short film, the one that got him all the notoriety and funding to do this film okay. uh, back in 2008. That movie is called Glory at Sea, and I believe it is available online for you to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was when they moved down to New Orleans and really got entrenched in the culture, which brought them to this movie. So uh, Ben Richardson's a stud, man. He went on to go do things like Fault in Our Stars. He shot Mayor of Easttown uh, with Kate Winslet. And uh, yeah, he's he's uh, got a pretty budding career. And uh, he's one of the, the few from this that, uh, you know, has really kind of shot up. He even dated Anna Kendrick for, uh, for like four or five years. So oh, wow. um, he's uh, entrenched himself into the... Hollywood subset where the rest of these guys just kind of went on to go stay uh, as lost boys from Peter Pan. So <laughs> keep doing what they're doing down in new Orleans. Very interesting. Yeah. And the film looks good. You know, it feels very authentic, right? The 16 millimeter format is going to be not as crisp as a 35, obviously, or even anything right. high definition digital. So I think, but that's this isn't keep... a crisp story that we're telling. We want to feel the the grime and the muck, you know, and all of the things. And so Correct, little film yeah. grain or, distortion you know i would rather film grain than digital noise you know like if you try to use a cheap digital camera and by the way it's you know it it bears mentioning they shot this in 2010 so you know there wasn't a lot in the way of digital advancement back then you know i don't even know if the canon 5d mark ii had come yet come out yet so where they would you know, be able to shoot with prime lenses or, or cinema lenses in 24 frames per second. Yeah. So I think we were still on that old school digital tip um, where, you know, you were either using maybe a, an Aeroflex digital camera. They might've had some technology like that, but nothing that would have been available to, 
to these guys. So 16 mil it is, you know, and they did a great job. He also restricted it to mostly two lenses. Um, they shot with 25 millimeter and 50 millimeter, and they found that those two lenses gave them the points of view. Cause this whole thing is told from the point of view of hush puppy, right? Um, the, the six year old girl. Mm-hmm. So a lot of low angles, you know, you're kind of seeing things through her eyes. You're down at her level. You're never looking like down at her. Very rarely are you ever looking down at her. Sure. You know, most of the time you're looking up at everyone else um, or, you know, you're down a little lower to the ground. And so, uh, you know, he had to compensate for a lot of that. It's also shot uh, most all handheld. So a lot of shaky shots too. So you got to be in for that. Yeah, there's a lot of of shaky camera work. There's a lot of close-ups. It also does have... Fast edits, but not like Paul Greengrass fast edits. You know, it's right, it's right, kind yeah. of it's digestible enough. So, and I think that it worked. Like I'm somebody who's pretty sensitive to what I would call overly fast edits. So, I would say that they kind of, for someone like me, they pushed it as far as you would want to go. It didn't get to the point where it's sure. distracting. I wasn't like, dude, just give me a second to see what the hell's going on, right? It's like right. You're watching Transformers and they've got like seven edits per second. You're like, I'm sure there's cool shit on screen. I just don't have enough time to process it, right? Like, It's especially fast like during the dialogue scenes, right? So as they're yeah. like going back and forth between Wink and Hush Puppy um, or, you know, obviously if there's an intense scene happening, but then there are moments that they give you to kind of drink it all in when they're floating down the, the river um, on their makeshift boat, truck bed. Um, you know, and all of that. So, uh, or, or when you're going through the town and stuff like that, I will say that, uh, when it comes to the fast paced editing, one thing that, uh, I did find out is that, you know, these sets were built in totality. So like every detail was there when you open up a drawer, it had silverware in it. The, um, Ben Zeitlin's sister actually created these sets and built them all from scratch. And, uh, and she lived there on location and was like building them, as she was living in these sets. So the uh, hush puppy home and all the things as they were building these on location, she was living there. And so as such, she created it in such a way that it could feel lived in. And so that freed, I'm only mentioning that because that freed uh, our DP up to shoot this documentary style and turn the camera any which way he felt that action was happening and kind of document it as such. Sure. And, Zeitlin even said that uh, he treated the camera uh, department as an actor. So he would direct the DP in the se- to get performance out of him and the camera work in the same way that he would give notes to Hush Puppy or Wink um, or any of the other uh, characters on set uh, in the way that so, so ma- basically meaning that. Um, he would give uh, emotional notes, you know, try it like this. Or what if you were doing that, um, you know, and give these emotional beats that a director would give an actor uh, to get a certain response out of them. He would do the same with his cinematographer. And that's why sometimes the camera work is very frenetic and the edits uh, are very quick to reflect that. And other times they're very, um, you know, slow and methodical and let you drink in this environment if that's what that shot or that scene needed to evoke. Absolutely. And we're going to discuss a little bit more about what the overall effect of the viewing experience is by way of those decisions. When we get to the film for now, we're back and Hush Puppies wandered into town and hey, look, dad shows up. Turns out there's a violent hurricane that's about to hit and most people are leaving town, but not dad and not a few of his friends. 
Uh, They're going to stubbornly refuse and ride it out. Predictably, the storm hits, and it's just as bad as everybody said, if not worse. Incredibly dangerous, and, you know, they're inside kind of hiding out from it, but it soon becomes pretty apparent that this is going to be a very, very uncomfortable and difficult situation. So Dad's response is to hammer the bottle of moonshine that he has available and run out and go full Lieutenant Dan against the storm and uh, yell and fire his shotgun at the gods and the forces of nature that are conspiring against him because this is the type of person that this dad is here. So, I'm going to get you, Storm. <laughs> he says something along those lines. It's fantastic. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, I suppose it's sort of an extension of the, you know, man against God idea. In this case, God being assumed by nature. Sure. But once again, this is an incredibly dangerous storm. And uh, you'd have to think that uh, he's he's lucky to still be standing after all of that is said and done. And uh, so, but, you know, stand they do. We cut to the storm subsiding. We see that Hush Puppy and her father, Wink, have both survived. But there has been major damage done. And this is obviously where some of those, you know, Katrina illusions are going to come into play. And we're going to see the effects of a devastating storm. And so they decide that they're going to take their makeshift boat and sort of travel down and see if they can see any survivors. And along the way, also, Dad's going to try to teach her some survival techniques and such because (laughs) basically he's of the opinion that the world's coming to an end. And so his response is to teach her how to fish with her bare hands. Now you got to punch those fish (laughs) (laughs) ball of your fist. Yeah. It's just a good old fashioned fish punch fish punching. That's what I have here in my notes. No, absolutely. yeah, Yeah. It's hilarious. So let's, let's talk about, let's talk about this, these characters. Okay. And the acting associated with them. Okay. I, sure. I, I've ex- I've expressed this before. Once again, you know we need we need to differentiate between acting and character and characterization, right? Okay. A character is the character that is on the screenplay that gets brought to life on screen for us, and acting yeah. is the actor's ability to portray that character, right? Okay. So I think that nobody is dis- going to disagree with the idea. That Hush Puppy and Quivenjane Wallace are both outstanding. Uh, the character is a great character. She's a young kid trying to figure things out. We automatically sympathize her. She's got a questionable father. And likewise, Quivenjane is very charismatic. She brings a lot of energy to that role. And I don't think there's anybody out there that's going to disagree with that, especially proven by the fact that she is currently the Youngest person ever to be nominated for Best Actress at the Academy Awards at the ripe sure. old age of nine years old, right? Yeah. Uh, widespread acclaim. She was five when she auditioned, you yeah. know, and she was six when they were filming this. So, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, exactly. You know, and again, you're not going to find anybody that's really going to disagree with that. And I think that because of that, what then becomes the most interesting character to discuss is the father of Wink, played by Dwight sure. Henry. Now, once again... The acting here is phenomenal and even more impressive when you know that just like Quivenjane, this is this dude's first acting role. He didn't even want to be an actor. And if I if I understand correctly, the filmmakers approached him uh, because he was he, at, at like a restaurant or something he was working at. And we're like, hey, we're making a film. We think you'd be great. And they like auditioned him and then they gave him he the was, role. Is that accurate? He owned a bakery they were getting breakfast at every morning while they were doing while they were auditioning for the roles. Yeah. 
That's crazy, man. Yeah. So so they were going in to get the you know all their their bait goods, and uh, they just kept striking out, um, doing you know trying to audition acting talent uh, out of New Orleans. They they weren't getting in the surrounding areas. They weren't getting the talent. Uh, they weren't quite getting the parts right, and so. Quavengine uh, uh, was also not an actor uh, at the time, actress at the time, and uh, she was an unknown. And they landed on her. Once they got Hush Puppy, uh, then they, they were able to cast the rest of these roles around her. That was kind of the anchor. Um, it was younger than the than the role was written for. The role was written more like around a nine year old, ten year old, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, kind of coming to terms with the end of childhood, the end of innocence. Um, you know, and that was all kind of intertwined in this, the original story. But, um, you know, when they found, stumbled on Covengine, that changed their whole dynamic. Uh, but then, yeah, Dwight Henry, who plays the father, Wink, uh, was just the baker. And it took a, quite a bit of convincing. And not only that, once they finally convinced him, uh, he still, you know, the, the, nobody knew what this movie was going to be, right? It's a tiny little indie film. They're shooting out on the bayou. This isn't, you know, an Al Pacino film or or something you're going to, you know, a Peter Jackson movie or something you're going to retire off of. Like, who knows if this thing's going to make two used condoms and a nickel at the box sure. office. So yeah. he, uh, this Dwight Henry guy had to keep his bakery afloat the entire time while they were making this. So he would work at nights getting all the baked goods done. Um, he'd come in around midnight and work until the morning um, during that time, while he was prepping all his baked goods, uh, Ben Zeitlin, the director, w- um, had acting coaches brought in and were rehearsing his lines and giving him performance notes and doing all of this in the back of his bakery uh, in the middle of the night while he was preparing uh, the next day's baked goods and all the dough wow. and all the things and letting it rise and sit and whatever it is bakers do. Sure. So um, then in the morning, uh, he'd get a few hours of sleep and then they would go out, you know, and uh, rehearse and, and, you know, work on the uh, the old movie. So, and you know, and he'd have staff or employees, you know, take care of the shop while he was away. But uh, sure. then, you know, after this uh, debut, he went, it's my understanding, he went back to the bakery. Now, he, uh, both uh, Quavengine and Dwight Henry, the father, um, have gone on to be in other roles. So they didn't give up on acting entirely. Quavengine most famously probably was in Annie, Little Orphan Annie with Jamie, Jamie Foxx, the redo that was done a few years ago. Uh, Jamie Foxx is Big Daddy Warbucks. So, uh, and Dwight Henry's been in some stuff as well. A few uh, years ago being went, like what, like like eight, by the way? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. I'm just saying like they didn't uh, immediately go back to their, their hometown. Yeah. They did uh, continue yeah. on. And she was in American Horror Story. Um, he was in 12 Years a Slave. And, you know, they've gone on to do other things. I'm just, you know, picking yeah, some of but them. But very, 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 very small roles relative to something of this magnitude. Uh, they did not go on to have uh, the large careers. But, I mean, and I think that everyone's probably most surprised at Wallace's lack of activity. But I do think that as this film was released, that Dwight Henry's performance got largely overshadowed by Quivengenese, but not because of the performance itself, just because of the fact that this was a little girl and we're always that much more impressed when sure. a kid can do something that, you know, a lot of adults can't do, right? So we've seen a 60 year old man act before. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that's exactly. not, there's no novelty. There's no to novelty. That. But when Correct. you see a six year old act, that's. Something else all entirely, you know, entirely that that a six year old child is, uh, you know, able to evoke those emotions out of me in an hour and a half. Sure. Uh, and it's her story. So, you know, this is uh, as I previously stated, they shot all this and told this story directly from her point of view. So at that level, Dwight Henry kind of becomes 
you know, a a co-star of sorts. I think this is Quavengine's film, and so which I think is unfortunate a, though, because I think that he does okay. a really good job in this film. Oh, I he think does. That he probably. Yeah. I I would actually argue that he even does, uh, admittedly, a better job than Quavengine. Now. Uh, that could be a relative scale because, again, this is a six-year-old girl who's acting. And so – but the authentic – again, you know, you spoke of the authenticity of environment. The authenticity of character that this man brings to this. You know, he's a he's a very, what I would argue, troubled character. And that's what we're going to get to in just a second here. But before we do, I do want to step back and just say that I think that Dwight Henry delivered an amazing performance. He I would did. have to imagine that he probably – has experienced a fair share of hardship in his life that he was able to cull from because for that to be your first performance and tap into those emotions and the anger and the frustration. And, uh, you know, I understand he, he, his bakery was affected by, by Katrina and he was able to cull on some of those emotions. And so, yeah, you know, that's pretty crazy now. So just real quick, um, just to kind of touch on this, um, I know you keep bringing up Katrina, but uh, it's worth mentioning Katrina hit more on the east side by Slidell in New Orleans, and it kind of came up uh, around that way. Now, it did obviously impact uh, where they shot this in Isle de Jean Charles, um, which is, again, uh, 80 miles southwest of New Orleans. Um, it's okay. a little sliver of land that's off the coast of, you know, of the delta there. It's out in the water. Uh, but um, they were hit by Katrina and Rita. Um, Hurricane Rita okay. a month apart in 2005 and then uh, in 2008 just three years later they were struck by a Hurricane Gustav and Ike one week apart wow um, something else we'll talk about uh, so you know within three years to have four hurricanes blast your land um, and then on top of that in 2010 as they were shooting this film I'm sure you have this in your notes maybe you don't uh, we can get to it in a bit but I'll just go ahead and quickly drop out there that also the BP oil spill happened, uh, the Deepwater Horizon uh, scenario out in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, I know you live out in California, and that was something that you maybe saw in a headline or thought, oh, you know, that sucks. Dude, that was a big freaking deal here. Uh, sure. But entire communities were lost. These, uh, you know, the, the oil and the tar that was coming up in the shores. These people, they fish and shrimp for their meals, um, you know, oysters, all these things, that whole... You can't just go out and cast a net and, ca and catch these shrimp anymore without pulling them up just soaked in tar and oil. And that was all going on literally as they were filming this movie. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's uh, these people have uh, really encountered some hardships, so much so that they uh, I saw in 1955, um, this area of Isle de Jean Charles and, and uh, the surrounding areas that they filmed in uh, consisted of 22,000 acres of land and had a flourishing community. Like it was normal to live down there. And then since 1955, they've lost 98% of that uh, to saltwater intrusion, erosion, oil fields from all the oil, uh, you know, uh, to taking all the oil out of that land as well, which is really big man-made waterways and pipelines to get the oil out um, has all just completely fucked that area. And so that's why, you know, they're talking about the salt killing all the, the trees and the grass and everything turned brown uh, later in the film after this storm passes. Um, you know, that's that's something that's really happening down there. So, yeah, all that to say, uh, I'm sure this man's bakery was totally hosed <laughs> the last couple decades. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, he's seen some shit and, you know, it kind of came through in the performance. And I think, too, I'm kind of taking the conversation back full circle. Uh, that's why they realized very quickly it was important to 
you know, kind of not get the Hollywood archetype actor and just go for these salt of the earth people and let them inform the the narrative, you know, and tell the story their way. This is their story, you know, and they've lived it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, to get back to the matter of character. So this is kind of what I am hoping to discuss right now is the nature of who this character of Wink is, right? Again, sure. carrying over, we have the acting, which the acting is great from Dwight Henry. Now I would like to discuss the character of Wink. So my first question to you, Ryan, via very simple response, is what do you think is the film's perspective of Wink? What is the film, and by extension Ben Zeitlin and everyone else, think of Wink and how he's portrayed. Um, I don't know if this answers your question, but but I have mentioned several times that I think that it's it's Hush Puppy's perspective. So okay, so know, but if if the film is Hush Puppy's perspective, then what does Hush okay. Puppy think of of Wink? Um, and by extension, the film. I, right. Yeah, he plays different roles throughout the film. It's a little inconsistent from that standpoint, in the sense that sometimes he's her best friend and, you know, almost like an older brother character, even though he's, you know, many, many years her senior, um, where, you know, it's like, okay, here's what we're going to do, you know? And he kind of lays it all out when they're going through the storm and, and he has a, a vote of confidence also when they're arm wrestling, you know, I'm going to teach you, you know, how to be a man, you're going to beast it, you know, when they're eating the crab and, and sure. all of that. And it's a very much an older brother kind of character, a best friend. Okay. Uh, but then there are times when he is, vulnerable, uh, namely when he's sick and, um, telling her, you know, I may not always be around and all of that. That's all done, you know, through a very confusing lens, because I believe Hush Puppy was very, would be very confused about something like that, or, or, you know, trying to come to terms with mortality. Um, and then there are times too, where he's a violent drunk and not a good father and threatens and, uh, you know, but, I will say even in those moments, he takes a lot of shit in stride, namely Hush Puppy literally burning down her house uh, when she's cooking the cat food concoction. We kind of skipped over that, but yeah, she literally burns her house to the ground and, uh, you know, he was a little upset about it, but then like in the next scene, he's like putting tape on the floor saying, okay, this side's mine, this side's yours. Don't come on my side, blah, blah, blah. They're divvied it out. So again, we're kind of back to that. to, To be clear, you think that the film thinks that's good parenting? Oh no, not at all. I don't. I didn't say that. So that's what I'm trying I think to figure these people out. Because, are just doing what they need so you to don't do think, to get so by. So you don't think the film has a positive or negative view of Wink? You think it's just like here's here's this guy Wink. He is what he is. Think what you want about him. Is that what you think the film is doing? Well, no, Jason. I think you're bringing up a good point, which is you know, uh, kind of a moral quandary that the film softly proposes it doesn't really beat you over the head with it it kind of lets you come up with your own conclusion which it sounds like you did um but it's you know it's the fact of like so this this father wink is raising his his daughter in the bathtub uh Mm. and you know if you were raising your daughter in in such precarious situations and the government was trying to relocate you or give you assistance in some way even so much as healthcare to try to get you back on your feet again. And you were too stubborn to accept that, you know, in, in one, you know, in one breath, I could say, okay, that's their home and it's generational land. And it was, you know, the, the, the folly of man that stripped that away from them, one could argue and all of these things. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, but 
uh, regardless of what the cause is, if you gots to go, you gots to go. Like your house is fucking falling apart. One caught on fire. You have a daughter to look after. And, and this community is looking after each other too. Like you would think they would want better, you know, when they can't fish anymore. And it sounds like some in the community do feel that way. In fact, you see a majority of them leave when the first storm comes and, uh, and you know, he's like banging on hoods, like, well, y'all leaving blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. They're like, fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> like you're not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, I, I see his side. I mean, I definitely understand like it's your home and, and you've lived there your whole life. It's all, you know, how to do and how to provide for yourself. Um, they speak very ill about people on the other side of the levee or, you know, the common sure. man, so to speak. Um, you know, that's kind of how the film opens, uh, with. Uh, with her little monologue and stuff uh, that she's describing how her dad describes it over there. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's definitely a moral quandary that I, that I understand, but, uh, but I do tend to agree with you more than not just in the sense of, you know, you got to do what's best for your own. Well, it's just, I mean, it's the fact that he has this kid with him, right? Like that, that's just right. the thing that like changes the calculus so much, you know, it's because so like, much does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're going to sit, like I said, dude, if you're going to sit there and hunker down inside and, and it's just you and you want to like, you're willingly or you're willing to sacrifice your life because you're too stubborn to leave and you've sure. convinced yourself it's in defense of your home. Look, I, I completely get it. We've actually, We've act, me and my wife have actually been in a situation out here in Los Angeles with fires that came very close. We actually had um, like evacuations on our street and stuff and 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 we didn't leave immediately, you know, but the point is right. that like we were ready to, you know, we had stuff prepared. Uh, we stuck it out maybe longer than we could have or should have, depending. But the point is like there was a there was a certain point where it's like, look, when th- if things get this bad. You know, we have to go because we have a kid like we can't just we can't, you know, if we want to be stubborn and try to, you know, fight nature and all of that. And 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 we pass and that's how we go out because of our decision. That's fine. But like, you know, to once you have a kid here, you got to You know, if, if they need to go, they need to go. You know, you got to protect them first and foremost, even if sure. even if it right. means potentially losing your house or whatever. So like well, I said, and it's I mean, layered, too, because yeah. he's got like was it cancer or something like that. He's got he's ill he with something. something. Yeah. So it seems like it's uh, an know, infection, I think, is what we learn later. OK, some sort of infection. Well, that seems like that's curable then. Right. Like you would think they could fix him for that if he doesn't let it go too long, which he did. And then, of course, he, you know, uh, not the spoiler alert, but, you know, he he ends up getting whacked or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. it's uh, uh, there are multiple layers of his own neglect of himself, which by proxy is neglecting his daughter. And so I see your point. Uh, you know, I, I, it's like, I'll go down the road with, with this whole, this is my land thing for a minute. And then once you throw a five year, you know, six year old, uh, little girl in the mix, um, you know, pu- teaching her how to punch fish out of the back of a pickup truck, isn't uh, <laughs> going to cut it anymore. You know, <laughs> you I, yeah, I mean, it up. might be charming in and of itself, but in the grand yeah. scheme of things here, it's like, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of more going on. Sure. So, and and we can also talk about the the way that just sort of the film is constructed and how maybe that plays into some of this. 
um, here in just a sec. So when we get back to the film here, we've got another of these random, you know, giant boar. What do they call them? Ockers? The giant the boar things? Aurochs. That's right. Yeah. Which I, I'm really excited to get your take on that when we get to the end of the film here, because I think okay. that I might have missed something on that. Uh, or nope. just <laughs> Oh, I'm okay. going to so disappoint you with my take on that then. <laughs> you just um, settle in for my non-take on that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so they, they, they go and they, uh, they being Hush Puppy and Wink, and they get back on their boat and they're traveling down. They're going to try to find, you know, any of the other survivors now that the storm has subsided. They do find some of their friends that are like also passed the hell out in the middle of their house. Sure. Uh, and, you know, and, and again, I think for me, like that was a funny moment. And it's because again, the stakes are different because it's just this old couple, this old man and woman, there, right. there's no kids, there's no anything else. The two of them are very much on the same plane in terms of how they look at this situation. So again, you know, like I could, I could see, I can see, you know, you or anyone else disagreeing with me on, you know, the father's character. But again, it's just like, you know, when, when you have this this five year old kid there, there's this whole element of like basically child endangerment that you have to take sure. into account. Right. And that's just the way that it is, you know. And um, so, again, that's that's why that character takes on that shade for me. But so there's totally also a very. Yeah, and there's also a really interesting scene that I didn't understand, and 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 again, much like uh, the boars a second ago, uh, this is perhaps something you can help shed light on. But um, it's a couple weeks later. Uh, to your earlier point, you know, we have like the salt water that's sort of killing off the vegetation and the wildlife. It's all you know, the ecosystem has been damaged and uprooted, and those effects are now starting to take hold. But there's a scene very quickly here where they, I believe they strap explosives to an alligator and then blow up a levee with it. Yeah. I had no idea what's going on, Ryan. Do you, do you have any light on that? Uh, I think they were trying to let the water drain and pass and level off. So, you know, the levee is obviously there to hold back the water from getting into the town. And so if you blow up the dam then all that water that was flooding their uh, that their land, the bathtub, and bringing in all that salt water, that all can now flow freely into places it's being held back from, and the tide will balance itself out, right? And okay. uh, it'll just keep going until it finds its own level. That's what water does. So, uh, okay. yeah, I think they were, you know, uh, trying to find an apparatus to, you know, strap. Now, why they chose an alligator, I think that's yeah, just... That's- an- that's just That's some southern shit of... right there. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe because like the gator floats or something, and they need okay. It I'll to give you like that. Float I'll go down that road. I like that. Yeah, yeah, it floats. <laughs> so then you know that way because well, anything well, else, if they tied it to a rock, then it would just you know sink right away or whatever. If they just threw the explosive at it, you know, it would die out or something. So yeah, they needed something like a, a buoy device to get it over there yeah. on surface level to blow as much of the levee up <laughs> as possible. And then they, you know, bring the little wire back with a detonator and and uh, go to go to explode it to drain that water. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess that at least somewhat makes sense. Uh, Is it if, silly? If Is it southern angle. ass shit? But let me tell you, bro. <laughs> I'm out here in Florida, man. Like, uh, you know. They're crazy down here. Like yeah, the South I, gets wild. Florida man is say, a could thing be, for a reason. It, it could be like a very like known thing. Like, oh yeah, you know, anytime you need to send a, an explosive down the river, you do so in an alligator. <laughs> because the alligator floats, see? 
you just get what what's uh what you could use yeah <laughs> I so wish I could do a Creole accent, but we're not going to go there because we've been down that road before and it sucks. We have. We're both terrible at it. Uh, me, I think worse than you, in fact. I think and I we're live both in the horrible. South. You think I'd have that nail. <laughs> one day, buddy, one day we'll work on it. And one day we're going to come out with the best Creole accents ever. It's, yeah, it's weird Southern French. It's the weirdest fucking accent. I love it. I think it's great on film. I cannot do it. Yeah, no, there's a weird way the words come out. Like you're like kind of like they're always sliding off your tongue a little bit. I don't know. It's hard to describe. Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll work a sketch around it. Maybe we'll take a commercial <laughs> break here and like a minute and a half as far as the <laughs> listeners are concerned. And uh, meanwhile, I'll take two weeks and write this shit and I'll come up with some kind of cool Creole uh, sketch that I can work <laughs> in here. Fantastic. Also, because uh, old Wink is dad of the year here in the uh, next scene. Uh, <laughs> Father of the Year Award, yeah. Decides to, uh, you know, what? What is she six by now? Oh, that's plus. You know, you're six years old. You should be drinking some hard liquor by now. So uh, here, Beast let's uh, let's get you, let's get you, let's get you hammered. Let's get you, get you going early. Yeah. I yeah, again, I just, I don't understand why I seem to be the like, like I have not seen much online about Wink being a bad dad or anything. Everyone just, it's like, oh, it's so heartwarming. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm the asshole. Fine. I'll call it out. I'll be the asshole. This guy sucks, but that's just me. <laughs> so, now, if, <laughs> so let me ask you real quick before we move on. Cause then uh, after this, we could put this whole thing to bed and never speak of it again the, <laughs> because we, we, we have beat a dead horse to death, but, uh, and then strapped dynamite to it and pushed it into a levy. So, um, do you think honest question? Uh, and, uh, I'm not saying one way or the other here, but do you think the film answers that for the viewer through emotional cues and all of that by saying Wink is a good guy? Or do you think it's more leaning heavily on his relationship with his daughter, but it leaves your view up uh, of Wink up to the viewer? Meaning you can think he's a piece of shit. He obviously does care for her on some level, but sure. he's kind of a degenerate. Do you think the film is telling you he's a good guy? Because you seem like I like do you think. Okay, yeah, I think that's kind of where like my distaste for the character comes from. Okay, is is be I feel like the film wants me to think that he's a better guy than than he is, right? Got like, it. It's like I don't know, dude. It would be like if you know you're you know you have a good female friend and she's like, oh, I'm seeing like the greatest guy like oh man he's just like the biggest gentleman and like he comes over and he's just absolute piece of shit right and you're yeah. like wait wait this is the guy you were talking about smoking like, in your house because i and, yeah. don't yeah i don't <laughs> I, you you made him out to be this and i see him as that and then like yeah. you know like then later on like you know mom calls and it's like oh wasn't brad a sweetheart and you're like what no no what do you mean like yeah like you, you took a shit in the middle of your carpet right and then everyone's like oh but that was for laughs wasn't that funny and you're like no sure no and yeah. And like you're the asshole because you don't like Brad, but you're like, I'm on to you, Brad. This feels like the plot of a Ben Stiller movie, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just because someone takes a shit on the carpet. That's a plot of every Ben Stiller movie, I feel like. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking, not literally, but yeah. Yeah, but but no, it's just one of those things where you're like, look, man, I'm telling all of you guys, this guy's got the he's he's fleecing you, he's got the wool over your eyes. I see the truth, I see him for what he is, he's a piece of shit, and everyone's like, nah, dude, you're just this is a you thing. And you're like, No, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, look out for him. That's he how I feel about this like weak guy. To me, that he's treating her, and I think I mentioned this earlier in the show, but it seems like their relationship is more like friends and not like yeah. he's her dad. Like, I feel like he's ill-prepared to be a father, but 
he still cares about her on like a friend level. So they're you know, like buddies. They're like a team up yeah. situation. So it's like, here's what we're going to do. Blah, blah, blah. Now take a nip of this whiskey. Now we're going to ride out this storm. Get on. I'm going to teach you how to fish. Like they're, you know, it's this buddy cop situation versus I'm your dad and I'll take care of you. Now it's not lost on me that he knows he's dying. So he's trying to prepare her for when he's not there, which he knows sure. could be very soon. So, you know, some of these life lessons that he's going on with, is like, I'm not going to be around, and there's no one in the bathtub that's going to look after you, and we've forged no relationships in the mainland. So once I'm gone, you know, but at that point, like, I guess just take her to foster cares. I don't know. Like, that's... Or, you know, I'm not like, or just, you know, you have these people that are part of your community, right? Work sure. with them, right? Like, right. hey, here's, you know, Uncle Florence or Aunt Florence and Uncle Dick, right? Like, yep. you know, why are we spending so much time with them? Ah, you know, no reason, right? They but seem to care about her a lot, especially like the teacher these... with the Oroks and stuff. Like, she's always, yeah. you know, you hungry, blah, blah, blah. Like, she's looking after her. Oh, yeah, perfect. Exactly, right? Like, yeah, so there's, there's a number, you know, and that would, that would play into this, like, you know, anti- authority keeping it within the community sort of thing sure. like i do understand that angle that they're trying to play like but again it's just like and here's the other thing that i think is interesting as well if this character is 10 years older i don't think i have any of these problems but it's okay, a six-year-old girl dude sure you're literally like like literally having your six-year-old daughter chug vodka i'm sorry right, that's never right. gonna be okay with me no don't, i don't care like it's i wouldn't just not ask okay. you to be okay with that <laughs> <As a father. laughs> yeah right like like ha- yeah six-year-old like hunkering down during the worst hurricane of all time in a yeah. shitty tin can box no dude i'm sorry like suck it up and, you know, and that's part of it, too, is, again, I, I mentioned earlier, but like these characters, it, to me, like it always stems from this lack of humility. And that's the thing. It's like, look, dude, sometimes you got to swallow some humble pie and be like, you know what? Yeah, I I can't provide for my family in this situation the way that like they need to. So, like, I need help. Right. The same sure. way you would ask for help if you needed financial help, if you needed mental health help. help right. Like and I think it's like. To me, I just see this constant lack of humility in doing what is ultimately the best thing for his kid and then trying to warp his decision to make it seem as though he's doing what's in her best interest when really that's not what's going on. And I'll take it I'll take it one step further, too, and say that even a flawed character or a flawed father is fine in a narrative context. We've seen it a million times played out on screen. But then don't ask me to have ultimate pathos and think that he's this great guy. And I don't know that I, that's where I may disagree with you. I don't know that the okay. movie answers that so clearly that yeah. it's asking us if it does, okay. it's because of the sentimental moments and the, and the musical cues and stuff like that. There are things in the film that I think, you know, are trying to make some of these moments feel more tender than they should. Sure. I will leave it with this though. Um, and, and again, uh, I think I did mention this at the top of the show, that to me, this is Hush Puppy's story, and it's mostly all told through her eyes. Yes. So if he's a good guy, or the movie is portraying him as a good guy in any way, shape, or form, it's because she sees him as a good guy, not because we're supposed to. Now, are we sure. along for that ride, and it's taking us by the hand, and thereby... You know, by proxy, now we're feeling like we're all of a sudden now it's like this weird. And that seems like where you're you're getting clouded because you're like, no, fuck that. Like, he's not a good guy. And you're trying to make me think he's a good guy. But it's like, no, Hush Puppy thinks he's a good guy. 
um, because it's her dad and she does, doesn't know any different. And this is the world she grew up in where all these people are getting drunk and raucous all the time. So there's some of that yeah. too. I don't know. That's fair. No, I, and I think that's a strong argument. I could definitely see that. And it actually parlays well into the next sort of talking point that I wanted to cool. ask or at least discuss about the film anyways. I think that a large part of what plays into the way the character is viewed is the lack of consequences. And I think that so much of this has to do with sort of the way that the film is constructed. And this is sort of what I think that, you know, aside from the Wick character, this is kind of also what didn't quite work for me is that it's one of these films that feels very much like a music video or a commercial, like a really drawn out. It has these very sort of commercial minded sequences and intents and stuff. So I would say that like, even the, like the Daniels have that, but I think that they succeed in a way that maybe this film didn't for me. And again, I know this film worked for a lot of people, so I'm kind of on, on the other side of this. Um, But yeah, but I thought that, Like if you take any five minutes of this film in a vacuum with no other context and you just watch it, it works because it's got that sort of montage leaning on the music. It's got the voiceover. It's got the visuals. It's got a lot of that feel. So but then when I take it as then a 90 minute film and I'm taking it in totality, it, it feels like it's just a bunch of stuff happening and it's all stitched together. And we never really get to dive into any of it. And because nothing bad happens, like basically, again, I think that is partly why the why I would say that the film has a positive view of the father, because in spite of all his neglect, everything just seems to constantly work out for them. Right. Whether he whether it's a result of him or not, you know, like uh, the house survives, even though all of the other houses in the neighborhood uh, were trashed, they survived the storm. You know, when they end up getting taken by the government officials here, like they're able to uh, like at least treat his infection to keep him going for a while longer. Uh, And so he's never really at least until the end. And, you know, of course, death being the ultimate punishment. Right. But along the way, I just feel like, you know, maybe things continue to work out and it's just, you know, it's difficult for me to resolve because I know the film is trying to be, you know, positive minded and it's trying to be of a certain emotional thing, but it's just so, but when you take the, the genuineness and the, the authenticity, uh, I don't know, like there's something about that that doesn't play together for me. Does that make any sure. sense at all? It does. It does. Yeah. Um, there are minor character choices too, like making him an alcoholic that might've changed some of the pathos for him, because if he was doing the best he could, but just was dealt a bad fucking hand, you know, and like you said, leaning on the community aspect, which they did a great job of, you know, building that into the the script and, and showcasing that, uh, that the bathtub was this great community. You know, if they would have used that as more of a positive out, outreach for Hush Puppy and not made him such a heavy drinker. But look, I mean, that that changes the whole thing, though, because these are flawed characters and they're portrayed as such. It's just, yeah, a lot of the endangerment aspects. Like, sure. and that's the thing. Like, it's not, I mean, we've seen plenty of dads that were alcoholics and loved their kids right. and were good dads and we have pathos for them. So, yeah, we've, we've, we've seen that character before. Again, it's just the fact that this guy is constantly either neglecting her for days at a time or putting her in these very dangerous situations and then just kind of brushing it off. You know, that's yeah. kind of what I take so much issue with. 
What about the parents from Home Alone? They could they did that to <laughs> Kevin McAllister for days on end. Twice. They did. Absolutely. Absolutely. They were horrible parents. Yeah. And they asked that fucking that fucking movie asked me to have pathos for the McAllister family. And I I refuse. Those no, bastards. I don't think. Yeah, no, it's just Kevin. Yeah, that's the thing. And it's the same thing here, right? The the kid that gets abandoned is the one you have the pathos for. Sure. The, other, the, the parents, it's like, shame on you. Yep. Yeah. So in terms of where the film is at, uh, the we, we've gotten to the point where, again, the government officials come. They move Hush Puppy and Wake to a shelter. The dad's revealed to have some sort of infection. The doctors operate immediately. And then he tries to send her off. And she gets pissed off and refuses. And that's when he kind of gets the like, I'm trying to protect you and save you. And so. Yeah, the whole lassie thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, just go on. Go get out of here. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Uh, Harry and the Hendersons? <laughs> yeah, Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> go on, no one wants you. Tale as old as time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but she obviously sticks around and they do end up escaping. And then I don't really know what uh, Hush Puppy and these kids Thought they were going to get by grabbing a single lifesaver raft and running straight into the ocean. I, I don't quite know where they were planning to go, but the four of them do and end up getting picked up by a floating lighthouse owner who, to me, sounded a lot like Mickey Rourke. Shady little character. <laughs> and from there, they're taken to a uh, floating girly bar, Elysian Fields or Elysian something or other. And... I, I, so by I the way, stop thinking of flippers from our lighthouse episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's fucking flippers. Yes, there's I a, knew it. There's a brewery. I, I want to say they're out of Washington. It's Elysian, and they make one of my favorite beers of all time called Space Dust. And I couldn't just stop thinking. Like, I really wanted the Space Dust when that popped up. <laughs> I was like, oh, nice. this is why they have uh, product placement because it works. I really want a beer right now, but. I have to admit, so I completely missed this. So oftentimes I will use some of the various summaries that are available online, like from Wikipedia or something when I'm going through and I'm building out the notes before the show just to kind of, you know, make sure that I didn't miss anything. Or Sure. Now, some of them are way off base, by the way. You cannot trust a lot of those things. I have stuff that like blatantly contradicts like the movie that I watched, but – this one, I, I think there was probably something that I missed, and I want to see if you caught this. When he takes the kids to this girly bar, Hush Puppy has a conversation with a cook. It's a female. And yes. she kind of gives her another one of these, like, life is hard speeches, kind of like the teacher or the woman who would have been her teacher toward the beginning of the movie gives. Apparently, that woman was her mom. So Did you know this? Alleged, I mean... It's never really spelled out for us, cut and dry, but okay. yeah, it's uh, it's a weird scene that's very kind of dreamlike. She pulls out a gator tail and she's like skinning this gator tail and deep frying it. So she has something to so Hush Puppy has something to eat. And all the while she's giving these, you know, Southern sage tales of how to live life and this and that. And then yeah. there's kind of this moment of like, realization I think between the two of them. Meanwhile, all the other girls that came out there with hush puppy, all the other little daughters and stuff are all like slow dancing and uh, being held by the other strippers um, or, yeah. or girl dancers of some kind. So, uh, you know, kind of like they just need each other. Like, you know, I, I, I guess in that moment, the girls needed the, the women and the women needed the girls too. like, they all just, it was just a moment of love and peace in this otherwise 
you know, rough and tumble world that they all came from. Now, whether that woman is her mom or not, I think you're supposed to think that, but it's never really like spoon fed to you. Okay, so they don't like explicitly say that's the case. Because it was said like, your mom was beautiful. Okay, we got that. She went out into the sea and she just swam out into the sea. Okay, well, we just saw Hush Puppy do that. And this is where she ended up. Uh, Makes sense that she would have gone to this floating barge. Uh, Sure is weird that she's only like, I mean, based on the size of that boat, she couldn't be more than just a few miles away <laughs> this whole time. Where have you been this whole time? Like, oh, I've been down the road these last eight years. Yeah. Like, you Show know, it's not like Rachel. it's that populated of a community where they get lost in the shuffle, you know. Um, <laughs> think you'd r- run into each other in the alligator pit once in a while or whatever. It's like, hey, yeah, is that right? Is that Mom Dukes over there getting a gator? It's like, no, nah, no, nah, you know, I don't know. That seems like some, some small world shit, but. Uh, yeah. Now, it would, does make sense thematically that they would be sort of like dancing with the the dancers because it was a very like maternal moment. And so maybe sure, that right. is the communicating that the filmmaker is trying to use. Like, hey, you know, this is this is here's all these very maternal moments happening. And, and that's the tip off that this chick is her mom, I guess. I I also want to just take a step back um, and because this movie is to me personally, it spoke to me more in themes than sure. it did in yeah. hard facts. Like I could blow holes in most of this film if I wanted to like go through logically and say this wouldn't work or why did they do this or is that this or whatever. You know, like we were talking about the Aurochs, same thing. Like what the fuck was that about? That all made yeah. sense to me thematically. But then when like, Hush Puppy comes face to face with one at the end. Um, pff, no fucking clue. Like, if you want to use that as a metaphor, you know, a narrative metaphor throughout the film, like the icebergs, they kept cutting back to like the glaciers falling and stuff. Because that's all, again, it's all from Hush Puppy's point of view. And she was told this happened or will happen again or whatever. So, okay, you're going to bring yeah. that up again. Perfect. But to like logically, I don't know if this is her mom or not, but thematically, it sure makes sense that they want you yeah. to feel that way. I get that. And I can appreciate that too. I'm, I'm, you know, it makes me think of the whole argument, you know, facts versus truth, right? You know, there's the sure. facts of a story. This is, you know, or like the plot of a story, right? These are the things that happen, but then there's the truth of the story or, you know, another uh, sort of famous argument would be like plot versus story, right? Like sure. when, when we analyze the plot, it's, you know, guy went here, this happened, this happened, X character, et cetera. But then there's the actual story of like, okay, well, here's all the moments in between. Here's what the film is trying to tell you, like you say, thematically and otherwise. So, yeah, I think that if you were to just, yeah, I think that if you just focus on the plot of this film, again, you know, you get sort of this this very frenetic, you know, jumping from one thing to the next, and really, but there are these additional story elements, like what you're talking about, where the film takes a moment to explore the tenderness between a mother and a daughter in relative to the situation. So right. Right. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, just real quick and I'll I'll put a button in this, like this whole movie kind of felt like jazz, which is the music native music of new Orleans, right? Like this movie would just kind of free flowed and it was created that way by the filmmakers too. Like they're all down there, like a bunch of winks and hush puppies as they're making this, uh, the court 13, production office. And we talked a little bit about that earlier, how they were, you know, living in a convenience store and you know, that, that boat, uh, the, the boat, the bed, the truck bed boat that wink has, that was actually 
Ben Zeitlin's truck that exploded during production that they ripped the bed off of and said, well, we'll make it a, a Wink's boat now. So that oh, became wow. Wink's boat. So That's everything cool. was like, they were living like the Lost Boys from Peter Pan down there at like 28, 30 years old, making this film on a minimal budget. And so, you know, uh, living out there being eaten alive by mosquitoes and dealing with snakes and all the overgrowth of ivy and, and vines that they would have to cut off of their sets because it kept like swallowing their sets. They'd have to go out wow. there with machetes and hack it all down. So, I mean, this was like true grit, you know, making this shit. And so I just think that, you know, I look at this film in totality, both the making of behind the scenes and the narrative of the film itself, really free flowing like jazz. And you could appreciate that. Or you could look at it and be like, where's the chorus? Where's the bridge? Where's the hook? And look for the, you know, the structure in it. And there, there isn't a lot of structure in it. Um, you know, and also the sax player is a total alcoholic asshole that needs to take care of the bass player. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So then it, it sounds like I heard though, that you didn't, pick up the metaphor for the Oroch's either. Cause I, I didn't understand that. No, just that hush puppy yeah. was told that they were going to, you know, they kind of, I guess represented the change in the world. Maybe that was the best I could do with it. it was like that teacher. I kind of missed it. Cause I was just getting into the film. It was at the very head of the film. She's having a conversation with her teacher. Maybe you caught this better than I did. Um, Cause I was still kind of getting situated into the film and settling in, but the teacher's having a discussion with Hush Puppy and discusses like, you know, back in the cave days and stuff, because she's got a tattoo yeah. of these aurochs. And, you know, when the glaciers fell and the changes in the world, and the aurochs came and took over all the mankind and blah, blah, blah. So I just kind of, the best I could do with it is that it represented like a huge change in the world, like evolution of some kind uh, in the same way that, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, uh, ice age turning and, and, you know, the death of the dinosaurs, like all these different cataclysmic changes that our earth has seen over the years, the aurochs were one of the symptoms of that or the outcomes of that. So as she's seeing the aurochs, that's kind of like changes that are happening in her life. Best I could do for you, buddy. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> I think symbolically. I think yeah, I just think it's a really I think it's a really simple metaphor. I don't think it's that there's nothing in there, but it's just like I think it's really kind of just almost surface level a little bit because I think that it's because it kind of carries over from the ice caps melting to your point. And so I think if you sort of picture it, it's like the ice caps melt and then the Aurochs are rushing as a result of that. Let's call them like an extension of the ice caps, right? And all of this is sort of reflective of this cataclysmic future that is spent the entire movie rushing towards Hush Puppy. And then when it arrives at the end, rather than be overtaken by it or intimidated by it, she stands up to it. And then the force of nature then bows to her and she's in control of that. Thus the metaphor being she's in control of her future or the future at large. So, but it's a pretty on the nose thing. Like you just, you know, if if you spend all movie alluding to this thing, then when it shows up, you kind of expect it to have some sort of impact, right? Or at least go on a great, have a great soliloquy or monologue or bring some sort of something, but it just shows up. And then it's like, Oh, actually, we weren't needed the whole time. Oh, okay, never mind. We'll just lay down and take a nap. Then (laughs) I was like, well, then why'd you spend the whole movie fucking building these things up? Yeah, I, I, I thought that was weird, you know. And not like only it, that, 
Like that was a big ordeal for them to create these creatures too. And like, really? you know, bring them into, it's the only thing that's not practical. Uh, I mean, it is a practical okay. yeah. bore that they use, but they had to shoot it against green screen over in New Orleans. That was the one thing they went off set to go do. And mm. they had a whole separate crew, uh, you know, break away to go do that on separate days you know, a second unit more or less to go into the studio and go film that a different way so that they could overlay it. And I guess it was a big pain in the dick because of the way that uh, the DP was shooting the regular ass footage, which was all super shaky handheld. And now they got to overlay this digital composite on top of this super shaky handheld stuff. And that became a big problem too. They had to like figure that out and uh, get their shit straight. And, you know, before they went in to shoot those specific scenes. So yeah. Um, not only is it, you're asking a lot of us, but you're asking a lot of your own crew to like add this into the film. So what are, what's the takeaway then? You know, like, what does this add? You yeah. know, and if it, if it's just a straight ahead metaphor, then great. Maybe I'm looking in, you know, too deep into this. Maybe it's just exactly like I said, maybe it's just the change in the world that is slow coming through different chapters of this film and represent different stages that Hush Puppy is in. And by the end, they confront and meet, meaning Hush Puppy embraces the change that she's now having to embark upon. End of story. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. It's just weird. It's just very anticlimactic. It reminds me of the Jurassic Park 3 ending that I famously bitch about all the time, where it's like (laughs) you spend 88 minutes like, we've got to keep the egg from the velociraptors. And then you're all finally cornered at a mini 89. And then someone's like, hey, uh, what if we just gave back the egg to the velociraptors? (laughs) And you're like, yeah, you know, we could do that. Here you go, velociraptors. It's like, why did you fucking do that 90 minutes ago? Why'd you waste my goddamn time, Joe Johnson? It's ridiculous. Oh, man, that's perfect. That is fantastic. Uh, I hate it. So, yeah, not quite that, but similar. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Did you catch anything yet? No, not yet. Should I reel it in? Nah, keep her going. Waiting's a part of the fun. (sighs) I'm bored. Hey, kids, are you tired of your old man's way of catching fish? Come on down to Hush Puppy's Fish Punchery, where you get to take the fight to the fish's turf and punch them right in the face. Now we're talking, but isn't it mean to punch fish? Me, 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 me. What you got in your hand there, little wussy? Looks like a fishing hook to me. Tricking and killing's no spa day for these fish. We're just giving them a fair fight. They want to drink a case of Coors Light and bring the heat to my house, they can bring it up with Darwin. I guess you're right. And it is way more fun. Heck yeah. At Hush Puppy's Fish Punchery, you're just three easy steps from a glorious fish dinner. First, you stick your arm in the water, elbow deep. Let that fish gobble your arm up like a prom date. Then yank that sucker out and give him a two-piece to his fish chin. Then we make him a two-piece, right? That's right, Jimmy. My name's Riker. That's a stupid name. Come on down to Hush Puppy's Fish Punchery, where you're just three easy steps to dinner. It's as easy as one, two, three. Just come on down to Hush Puppy's Fish Punchery. On the corner of 6th Street, McMaster's. Call 818-483-6285 today for a reservation. And now, back to the show. So one thing also I wanted to ask you about before, because we are pretty much at the end here and we're going to wrap this up. But do you know anything about the woman, I believe it was a woman who wrote the one-act stage play that this was adapted from? Yes. Lucy Alabar uh, is a friend of Ben Zeitlin's. And okay. uh, yeah, I think she went to NYU, but she grew up in the panhandle of Florida. 
Um, she wrote this in a different way. This was all very much reworked, retooled, and readapted. Uh, but the stage play was called Juicy and Delicious. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, and it was about her. It was uh, a, a kind of an, a creative outlet that she used to express her losing her father, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And so in this stage play, she would have been the hush puppy character. Wink would have been her dad. That was, you know, potentially a neglectful father or something along those lines. And so, um, you know, this was all changed and retooled a lot to go shift over into the bathtub and deal with the flooding and the loss of land. I don't think any of that was in the original story, from what I understand. Um, All these additional layers. It was really more focused on a daughter losing her father. And so at at the core of this story, I think it's from Lucy. And Lucy Alibar... Um, did join up with court. Like she's a member of this court 13 fraternity of sorts. Um, This ragtag group of production people that went, you know, to go make this thing. So yeah, she was a part of the production and and a part of the writing crew and all of that. So that, you know, everything was done with her blessing. Best I know. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then, so to wrap up the film, essentially, Hush Puppy turns to feed her father after the Aurochs show up and kneel before her, at which point he passes away. And the film wraps up when her and the townspeople give him essentially an old-fashioned Viking funeral where they put him on a boat, in this case their makeshift boat, light it on fire, and then send them out to sea. And they do so, and that is the conclusion of the film Beasts of the Southern Wild. Now, before before we get into our three adjectives and formal ratings, do want to remind you all to go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review for us if you would. Really helps us out, brings attention to the program here, and of course, we appreciate all the help that you can give us. So, let's go ahead and let's get into our three adjectives. Ryan, what do you got? My first is adventurous, Um, both in the spirit of the story and also in the spirit of the filmmaking experience as well. Hats off to Ben Zeitland and his entire crew for just going out guerrilla style and making this thing come to life. My second is organic. I felt like everywhere I went, uh, I was dirty. I was muddy. Um, You know, the rain felt like rain. Everything was just, it felt very organic. He did a very good job and the whole crew did a very good job of just steeping me in this Southern Bayou experience. Uh, You could, you know, argue that, it was a good or bad experience, but it was an experience. And I think that they did a very good job of taking you by the hand and, you know, going off to Never Never Land with them. Uh, the third is microscopic because uh, I think they also did a very good job of telling this story in minutia, in the details, in, from Hush Puppy's point of view. We got like down in it and uh, we saw it from a very small, you know, perspective from the point of view of this little girl. Um, we didn't have to, you know, go out much larger. They weren't talking about the oil derricks. We never saw what was on the other side of the levee, for example, other than that uh, government camp that they took them to, uh, the refugee camp, very briefly. Um, everything was very, very microscopic and, and boiled down to just what affected Hush Puppy and her tiny little world. How about you, Jason? I like those. So my first one is earnest. I do think this is a very earnest film. It's got some very authentic portrayals. Like I said, I, I did have some issues with some of the characterizations, but all of the acting was phenomenal. All of cool. the production design and the shooting on location and all of that. I really did appreciate all of that. 
The second adjective I have is flighty. And that's a little bit of the issue that I had with this film where it's like, I really would have liked to have sat in these moments a little longer, you know, and and seen how, a little bit more about how people respond. I would have liked to have seen some of some more of the consequences, you know, and have the story kind of be turning over as it moves on. You know, I think that if we can say one thing about this film and that's actually my third adjective uh, is that it is a one note film. You know, and then sure. look that that note, you know, let's or let's let's call it one chord. Right. And maybe that's a chord that you really dig. Right. And so cool. You know, you're good to just stay in this one place for those 93 minutes. And that works for you. It wasn't that I disliked the chord. It's just that it wasn't really my favorite. Right. Or I would have liked to have had a few more notes or, you know, gone a little bit uh, further with it or. You know, but uh, it's a very sort of, you know, centrally located film. And while that often works for me, I just, you know, I felt like it felt a little bit claustrophobic here in this in this scenario. So sure. Um, yeah. So all of that, I'm going to go ahead and give you my rating here, Ryan. Uh, I gave it a formal star rating of three and a quarter out of five. Like I said, I thought it was a, a good film. I uh, didn't love it. Um, didn't hate it, but uh, it was solid. And like I said, it just it was uh, between the character of Wink and just the overall aesthetic and presentation of it wasn't so much my bag. But again, still a very well-made film, cinema, good cinematography, great performance from our young girl, Quavenjane uh, Wallace. Yep. But three and a quarter stars out of five from Jason. What you got, Ryan? I'm giving this one a straight ahead A. I love wow, this movie. Nice. I, I would okay. uh, I would watch this again in a heartbeat, especially considering it's only an hour and 30 minutes. It's a short one. So yeah. I think it definitely warrants a rewatch. I will say next time I watch it, I will be watching it through a different lens. I think that uh, I was it was easier to get me to go along with some of these things. I think I'll be a little more critical now that uh, I've heard your points of view because I do agree with a lot of the things that you were saying. Um Maybe they just, uh, good old Ben got the best of me with his <laughs> smooth jams and, you know, charming little actress. I just uh, was was whisked away and, and uh, I like this movie a lot. The experience yeah. was great for me. Awesome. So we would love to know what you, the listener, has to think about this film. Obviously, you heard some differing opinions here between myself and Ryan. And again, we would love to hear from you. A couple different ways you can reach out to us. We do have the social media accounts. That's at Esoterica Cinema. Instagram, Twitter. We're also on email, esotericacinema at gmail.com. And then, of course, we would love to actually hear your wonderful voice. And you can do that by calling the Esoterica Cinema hotline and letting us know what you think. We would love to get your opinion in on one of our episodes. That number is 818-483-6285. And then you can also reach out to us on the website. If you go to the website, there'll be some different contact options, including a pop-up at the bottom right. And then you can also listen to all of our episodes through the website. We've got the last four right there on the site itself. We've got a link to a separate web player with every single thing we've ever released. And then, of course, right there on that website, we have our master list. That's right, the master, the master list, list that we choose all of our films from. 200 on there. Very good. We are... Or it chooses is, for us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think that if I have my math correct, this was, what, 14 on the season? So we have six left? Sure. Uh, yeah, some around right now there, so. <laughs> Why not? Let's go ahead and use our random number generator to see what movie we are going to be watching for our next episode. 
And of course, if uh, you're not driving and you would like to follow along, you can go to esotericacinema.com. There'll be a downloadable PDF, or you can just actually see a clickable PDF right there on the main website. You can follow along with us. So we're going to go here. We're going to select our random number. Boom, boom, boom. Wheel is spinning, and the wheel has spoken. The wheel has landed on number 148. So again, if you are playing, go ahead and scroll down to 148. I just scrolled down. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. So this is a... This is this is a wonderful, wonderful film, Ryan. I've seen this film once before in the last handful of years. It was my first time, and I adored it. Uh, it's a very, very emotional film. Super, super strong. Now, before we mention what the film is for those not playing along, let's go ahead and check out what we didn't get. We didn't get the film above it, number 147, The Crying Game, which is a classic one that I have never seen. Have you ever seen that? I one, have dude? also never seen that. Yeah, yeah, I just know the. Uh, we know. Yeah, we of course know the, the big reveal at scene. the end. Yeah, yep. but uh, yes, uh, from what I understand, there's still a lot more to appreciate about that film than just that. Oh, one I'd scene. love to see it. Yeah. yeah, and the other film that we did not get is 149, The Enigma of Casper Hauser, which is actually a documentary from my main man, Mister. Uh, well, you do the voice. Jason, um, <laughs> <laughs> whether Casper Hauser is an enigma or not is um, none of your business for now. Uh, <laughs> we will find that out in another episode uh, when 149 is chosen. Um, but I will let you know it is uh, probably a good movie. Maybe not. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) And that was, of course, Ryan's brilliant, brilliant Werner Herzog impersonation. Wonderful, wonderful impersonation. Dude, I've heard people on Facebook and TikTok doing Werner Herzog impressions recently that are not as good as yours. I'm telling you. you. That is a bang up Werner Herzog, man. And and I hope that the world recognizes it someday because it's brilliant. (laughs) Instead, no, we are going to be looking at film number 148, David Lynch's The Elephant Man. That's right. Yes. Now, have you ever seen The Elephant Man, Ryan? Yes, I saw it a long, long time ago, and uh, I obviously I, I know the plot and what it's about with John Merrick and all of that. Uh, but as far as the nuances of the film itself, I don't remember a whole lot about it. This would yeah. uh, again, we speak about this all the time. This would have fallen in that mid to late '90s five movies, five days, five bucks kind of film that I would have watched <laughs> it back then. You know, when I'm trying to catch up on all the classics and shit, this would yeah. have fallen in that. But, you know, it's it's David Lynch. Um, I got a little taste of Lynch and I was like, what is this? What is this about? And I wanted to get more into it. That's when I saw Eraserhead and, you know, all those things. So it would have been right in that time. But, you know, it's been so long. I don't remember much about it. I also always fucking forget that John Hurt plays John Merrick in this film. And, of course, yes. I, I do always remember Anthony Hopkins is in it sure. uh, as Frederick Traves. So, yeah. Uh, real quick, Google has this summarized as Dr. Frederick Traves, played by Anthony Hopkins, discovers Joseph in a sideshow. Born with a congenital disorder, Merrick uses his disfigurement to earn a living as the Elephant Man. Traves brings Merrick into his home, discovering that his rough exterior hides a refined soul and that Merrick can teach the stodgy British upper class of the time a lesson about dignity. From 1980. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so the the one thing that I will tell you, Ryan, and to anybody listening, it is not a weird movie at all. Like, do no, not go in expecting a traditional David Lynch experience. It's like, Correct. like a razor head is weird as shit, dude. For weird sure. as shit. Yeah. But this is not that film. So even if you this have, is probably his most, would you call this his most endearing and normal Hollywood style film? Yeah, like his most accessible film, probably. Yeah, yeah. The only the only other one might be the straight story, but I've never seen that. But I understand never seen it either. That's his G rated film for anybody that doesn't know. Weird. Yeah, I didn't know so, he made a G rated film. That's yeah, about a, a guy <laughs> traveling the country on a tractor, like a, an old farmer guy. Cool. Yeah. So um, I feel like this is going to be more in line with that. But yeah, this is definitely not going to be a blue velvet or a wild at heart. So just in case anybody listening like doesn't like weird cinema, I would still highly, highly recommend you check out The Elephant Man. It's a strongly emotional experience. It's a very solid, dramatic film. It's not weird as shit. And it's really well done. So at least this is what I remember of it. I'm looking forward to going back and maybe I'll have a different opinion this time around. Who knows? Looking forward to it. From Beast of the Southern Wild to Beast of the Northern Wild. The Elephant Man. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So to everyone who would like to join us for the next episode, be sure to watch The Elephant Man ahead of that. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining us and listening. We will see you next time here on Esoterica Cinema. Enjoy the movies.